Hello, my name's Gregory Wilker. Thank you for listening to my podcast, Live with Greg. Today is November 17th, 2019, and last night I learned that my podcast had way exceeded the resources I have to keep it alive as a video podcast. So I am actively working to move it to an audio podcast. The video is still available on my website, gregorywoker.com, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Live with Greg. Thanks for your support. Another episode of Live with Greg, and I'm here with Catherine Revois, who is an artist, a counselor, and a minister, correct? Mm-hmm. And a mom and a grandma. And a mom and a grandma. And a yogi. Yogi. Landlady. Landlady. <laughs> wow. Good friend. All right. <laughs> Things like that. Friends parties. Yes. And you have a Thursday night gathering. Yes. What is the gathering? Well, it's called Sacred Conversation, and it began um, about five and a half years ago with uh, a, a friend of mine who's a colleague who is a nonviolent communication facilitator, and he wanted to have a group, and I wanted to learn more nonviolent communication skills, and I'd done lots of groups, and he hadn't, so we combined our our, uh, his resources in my mailing list and my home and uh, we started a um, it's called, it was called like an empathy group where you practice the principles of nonviolent communication which is basically about compassionate communication and now it's uh, evolved into all the things that I like to do now <laughs> so I've added to the nonviolent communication skills by also offering information about interpersonal neurobiology, which is something that I'm passionate about, social neuroscience, and also um, I've become a facilitator of uh, family constellations, and so I do that. Family constellations? Yes. Being like a family tree? The... Well, yes and no. Um, like it's a truly planetary? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> all, all of the above. <laughs> um, epigeneticists have found that we don't just inherit our parents' eye color and all of those things. We also inherit their, uh, their trauma and their love and their stress. And so things that happened to our parents and our grandparents that we don't even know about, we may not even know them, they show up in our neurology. And um, from a, a neurobiological standpoint, when, when we're born, we're born into a family system that has got, goes back hundreds of generations. And, you know, when your parents got together and had you, he had his family system, she had her family system, if that's who they were. And they each brought their own rule book 
for belonging in this family system that they learn from theirs. And so by the time you or I is, are two years old, we're very clear about what it will take in order to belong in our family system emotionally. So because we are born so helpless, you know, of every species on the planet, we're the most helpless when we're born and take the longest to grow up. Survival for an infant is the same as belonging and acceptance and being loved and cared for. So an infant will do anything to belong. And uh, attachment theorists have found that at four months of age, a baby is looking at the primary caregiver's face, usually the mom, not always, and uh, can tell what emotions are not being reflected back. So if a baby has an angry face and the mom can't tolerate anger, then the baby will basically cut that out of their emotional lexicon and then grow up and wonder why they have such a hard time feeling angry. So the baby might say, oh, you know, you know in their little four-month-old non-cognitive way, they might say, well, it's not okay to get angry. I'll cry instead. So they learn to cry instead of get angry. And then, you know, that combined with all of the things that we do as infants and really young children in order to survive our the family rule book cause us to basically cut ourselves off from ourselves, which causes poisoning in our relationships as we get older. So we take on the attachment style or brain use pattern of our parents because that's all we have, right? So then we take that however they are, we are. And then we turn around at age four and we go to kindergarten and then we, we interact with our teacher in the same way and we interact with friends and then we grow up and we get into intimate relationships and then, oh my gosh, there are the same issues that show up in an intimate relationship that have to do with what happened or didn't happen in our family of origin. <laughs> That's probably more information than you wanted to know. No, no, no. Because <laughs> it's, it's so much information. Yeah. Like, my brain explodes with questions that oh. are just like a shocking. Yes. Because there's elements of like looking at the race situation in our country, mm-hmm. which is so prevalent. Yes. And obviously it's been prevalent forever, but it sure is now very on everyone's consciousness. Yes. And from what you're saying, there's a historical healing that's a necessity mm-hmm. because there are painful programs that have been handed down through generations. Yes. Yes, and there have been a lot of studies that have done uh, with uh, survivors of the Holocaust and their children, and the grandchildren um, are definitely taking on that, the trauma of, of that, of their grandparents, oh. often with, you know, without knowing anything about it. Right. 
All right. Yes. Okay. I follow all that. Now that's a very scientific. Yes. Biological, neurological. Yes. Okay. You have this other aspect of you, which mm-hmm. is a very ethereal, spiritual mm-hmm. part of you. Mm-hmm. With the biological, scientific aspect yeah. of itself, do you think healing and peace and love... This is maybe a silly way to ask this, but can nirvana be experienced and lived purely scientifically? Give give me a, a sentence definition of how you see nirvana. Complete peace and love in all action and thoughts all the time. Yeah. I, I don't think it's one or the other. It's kind of like, you know, the nature versus nurture, you know, thing that's been going on. You know, are we, you know, are we spiritual? Are we physical? I think that there, I don't, because of my spirituality, which um, uh, honors the, the, the wisdom principles that are common among all the major wisdom traditions, and the first wisdom principle that is common among all wisdom traditions is that there's only one of us here. Oneness. Everything is connected to everything else. Nothing is not connected to anything. You know, the butterfly in the Amazon, and the polar bear, and the, you know, we all hear those. It's true. Now, do you say that even scientifically? I think that it's scientifically true. I can't tell you exactly the, the resources for, for, for that. But the, the way I hold everything, including, you know, how you're talking about nirvana as being, can you just have that from a, from a biological, physical thing? I think it's, everything is integrated. That what I call spiritual includes the physical. Because, you know, people say, well, I'm a spiritual being having a human experience, right? I feel like I'm a spiritual being having a spiritual experience. And everything is spiritual. And, you know, once I was in between doing things that I love to be doing, and I wasn't sure what to be doing. And so I, um, uh, I was working at a, at a ministry uh, uh, down in, in Santa Cruz, and I came back, and I didn't know what to do with myself as a minister, as a new minister. And so I went to the farmer's market and I set up a card table and I put up a sign that said, free advice. And, um... (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like you had some experiences. Well, no, I just thought, yeah, I had some great experiences. But I talked to a, a, a seasoned minister who was a friend of mine and I said, you know, should I call it spiritual advice? And he said, well, isn't all advice spiritual? And, you know, that was really profound for me. What isn't spiritual? I agree 120%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I, I think science and spirituality or religion, or, we're all 
it's all the same seeking truth. Mm-hmm. And we were just talking about CCC earlier. Mm-hmm. My best experience. Approaching Tiburon. Right, yes. right. For the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's the academia coming out. <laughs> um, was a day they had of spiritual, like reverends, etc., and scientists, and it was a panel. And I'll never forget this one woman who was a mathematician, a doctorate many times over deeply in math and she said she entered math because she wanted something very solid mm-hmm. one plus one equals yes. two yes and the further she got into it she realized mm-hmm. at some point it was falling apart mm-hmm. because of the um theories and things that mm-hmm. she was getting into which i think currently we would say is quantum physics mm-hmm. in many ways mm-hmm. um so it does seem like all things kind of keep if you follow it deep enough, yeah. we all arrive at this place of, now what? Yes. Yeah, okay. as, as the Sufis say, th- there are many fingers pointing at the moon. Yeah. You know, if there's one moon, and a lot of people have a lot of different things to say about it. But it's still one moon. You know, we're still all connected um, with ourselves, each other, and everything else, including the butterflies in the Amazon and the polar bears and, you know, our government and, and everything. Okay, so the three things that I think of that you, like, professions mm-hmm. of yours, mm-hmm. minister, artist, counselor. Mm-hmm. Sounds like the artist was the first profession you took up? Yes, yes. I did. I, I studied photography. Uh, I studied. I, I studied um, psychology in, in uh, college, but I, I um, dropped out because it was boring, and my boyfriend was sleeping with somebody else, and so that was a really good reason to leave college. Wow! Show him. <laughs> yeah, show him. <laughs> Darn it! Why do we make these silly choices? Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, I wish I had a mentor. Back then. Oh, yes. It's really my only, it's my only regret in my entire life is not having a mentor to, you know, shake me by the shoulders and go, wait a minute, you want to think about that again, you know? Even though every single decision I've made, which is, I think, part of the whole oneness conversation, has led me to exactly what I need for the next expression of myself. So because I dropped out of college, then I got really passionate about photography. And so I moved from Los Angeles up to San Francisco to go to the Art Institute, San Francisco Art Institute in 1969, which was like a wild and fabulous time to be in San Francisco. And that was really cool. And then that led to a thousand other things. And then, um, yeah. Did you ever meet Jim Marshall? No, no. He's one of my favorite photographers. Oh. Um, no, I don't okay. know him. Yeah. All right, so... Annie Leibowitz. You met her? Oh, yeah, we were in school together. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I heard she... I just, I just yesterday, I think, heard a story of her uh-huh. and a relationship she had with... Uh, I forget the guy. The guy and his wife. like mm-hmm. it's, And... And a lot of drugs. Anyway, a lot of stuff about her I didn't know was real with her. Yeah. We think sometimes that because people are tremendously 
talented artists that 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 means that you know they haven't had trauma right or you know that they haven't had really hard lives emotionally and um yeah so (laughs) all right so then yeah you're on this path of a photographer yes and then i got pregnant and then i um oh before i got pregnant i dropped out of art school to help my brother start a natural food store down by the the airport in San Francisco because in 1971 there were already three natural food stores in San Francisco and that was way too many and there was one in Palo Alto and that was too many so we did it in Burlingame of all places and did it work? it worked for him, for my brother 47 years later he just closed it just closed it, yeah. Probably the only mom and pop natural food store left in the Bay Area. Yeah. So um, I uh, got pregnant and um, had a wonderful child, uh, the one in that painting over there. <laughs> and uh, it didn't work for us to be uh, in the same town as um, her dad. So we moved up to um, Katati and lived in a chicken coop. And then I knew a guy from the Art Institute who was a painter, and he, I showed him some stuff that I had been just drawing for fun, and he said, oh, I'll teach you how to paint if you want. So I would come down to his house in Woodacre. Uh, I moved to Marin so that I could paint with him. I could learn how to paint with him, and I studied painting with him. That's where I learned how to paint. Yeah, and I did that for a long time, and then I got interested in uh, the ministry when... Uh, when my life fell apart after starting a, a business in the gift industry, uh, putting my artwork on T-shirts and no cubes and hats and bags, and that that became very popular because I happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right images, right at the time when people started putting images on T-shirts, which was 1988, I think. Yeah, and. Uh, when you say you mean like art, like fine yeah, art images? Yes, yes. Okay. It really wasn't until then, other than the psychedelic stuff, right. that people put images on T-shirts. They would just wear, you know, plain T-shirts. But um, I was into cows, and so I did some cows, and I actually made some cows out of wood, and I screen printed them to look three-dimensional, and uh, that's how I started in that business um, because I. Well, that was another story. <laughs> I moved to the East Bay and got married and had another child. And and, uh, and we split up. And then I came back here to this house and um, didn't know how to support my two kids. So I started making these cows out of wood, cutting them out with my little jigsaw, and then screen printing them to look three-dimensional. Okay. And okay. all of a sudden, people were selling them, and they were in Orvis Catalog and Spiegel and Z Gallery and all these places. And and so then I was in business and had, didn't even know what an invoice was. Yeah. So That's wonderful. there I was doing my art, but putting it on T-shirts and stuff. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a very blessed life. It was a blessed life. Still it is. was so blessed, and I was really successful. And then everything fell apart in my life at the same time. Every corner of my life collapsed at once. The business, 
the business, the business, the the, the industry changed. People stopped wanting to buy T-shirts and they wanted to buy picture frames and candles and home things. And um, and my mother was dying of cancer in Los Angeles, and my son was 11 and he was troubled and in trouble, and the relationship of my life, which I thought we were going to be together forever, you know, he just left. And I just, you know, but that was like the darkest night. And yet, because of that, I said, oh, time to get around to that relationship with God that I've been avoiding since, you know, I was 16. <laughs> I'll do that later. I don't. I don't need that now. I'm okay. I'm okay. Really. I'll, I'm okay, God. Really. No. 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 I was like on my knees, and it was like okay. What I learned was, you know, you get on your knees and you stay there, <laughs> and that's, and so that's how I found um, a church that I I uh, never thought I would find a, a church that was progressive and inclusive and diverse. And um, I found one. Yeah. Now you say since you were 16. Yeah. So up till 16, do you think you had a relationship with God? I, only because my mom, you know, took us to church. And it was a beautiful church. And they had wonderful stained glass windows. Oh, God, they were beautiful. Those old ones, you know, they made in like the 40s and the 50s. Rich, rich colors. That's what I remember about it. But, you know, I just did, I thought that it just didn't make sense to me. You know, I couldn't kind of with my left brain figure out about how Jesus could do all those things. It was an Episcopal church. Um, and so I just, you know, I didn't have much use for it. My dad was probably an atheist. He would stay in bed at, on Sundays and my mother would take us to church. Um, so I just walked away from it, you know. And then... Later thought, yeah, maybe I'll do something about that. But not until I was on my knees did that happen. And then it happened, and I became a, just kept going to classes to learn more about this philosophy that was about how our consciousness is creative, which is basically quantum physics, but from a spiritual perspective. And so I did that for uh, a long time, and then, um, and then got the call to go to ministerial school without knowing what I was going to do with it. and So I did that. So I just kind of kept along. But I took my art skills and I brought them to the spiritual thing by drawing silly cartoons that help people understand spiritual principles. And that's what okay. I do now, helping people understand um, neurobiology. With your art and your cartoons. Silly cartoons, yeah. And you have a book right now that's published. What is it? It's uh, Two books. One is a children's book that's called Create, a, uh, a journal and sketchbook that's about creative drawing, writing, and thinking for like 7 to 14-year-olds. Um, and it's very fun and interactive. And then... Um, after I, I that was published in 2000, I think, by Chronicle Books here in San Francisco, and then I um, kind of I, I, I get a, I get information through my intuition, and I listen to it, and my inner guidance and resources usually, you know, either 
drops feathers or throws bricks or whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever it takes to get my attention. And uh, so, um, yeah, I, I, I was talking to the publisher of, of the children's book, and she was telling me, oh, we're so excited, we're going to publish a book, and we found a wonderful illustrator. And I went, no, 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 I'm the illustrator. And, and, and I went, oh, that really sucks. And then, um, and then I was talking to her again, and, and she said, well, you're going to have to take all the stuff about God out of this. Because I had things like questions, like, if you, ha- if you could ask God a question, what would you ask? You know, those kind of questions, because it's all interactive and drawing. In the book Creative. In, in the children's book Create, okay. yeah. And so then she said, well, we're going to have to take all that out. And so then I just got this really clear message that said, well, if you're going to take, they're going to take the spiritual stuff, then you will write a book that is just about spiritual stuff. And so that's how I wrote, came to write, Spiritual Doodles and Mental Leapfrogs, a playbook for spiritual for unleashing spiritual expression. Yeah, which is another interactive book that I totally hand drew. Did Chronicle publish? No, no, no. <laughs> uh, I, um, a house named uh, Red Wheel Weiser, which used to be a Buddhist and a spiritual, then they came together, Samuel Weiser and, and Red Wheel, and uh, they published it. And it's still actually on the back mm-hmm. list after, you know, whatever, 2000, like 17 years ago. Wow. So that's pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. How did you keep the physical elements of life together, like paying bills and all that, when everything fell apart? And you had two children. Yes, I had two children. So how did you... <clears throat> well, I've always rented rooms in my home. When I bought this home in 1979... I couldn't afford a small house. I had to get a big house to have people help me pay the mortgage. Uh, when I was an artist, when I was painting portraits, I painted that. I did that, painted portraits. I did illustration. Um, I did whatever I could do, basically, and I didn't spend much money. Uh, and then as I became a practitioner and then a minister, I and I learned how to do, uh, to officiate wedding and memorial services I started doing that and then I was able to put myself through school as a minister mm-hmm. is that the school? I went, put myself through ministerial school is that the school you're speaking of just now when you said you were doing weddings and able to put yourself through yeah, school yeah that school yeah okay. it, it's a school it's a master's degree in consciousness studies yeah and I, I did that by doing weddings and memorial services so, yeah. Um, when you had your table set up at the farmer's market? Yeah. <laughs> How did that go? <laughs> oh, it, it was, um, you know, sometimes I think about doing it again, but it's like, mm. uh, it was fun. It felt like very kind of exciting and adventurous because people didn't know what to think. And, um, you know, there'd be a lot of, guys coming by asking me about the stock market and <laughs> things like that. What should I invest in? But I had some really sweet uh, interactions with people. I remember this this um, seven-year-old girl came up once. I also did it downtown Mill Valley. Uh, the seven-year-old girl came up and she said, you know, I really want a dog. And my parents won't let me have a dog. 
And I'm just, you know, I don't know what to do. I've told them how much I want a dog. And it was like, she was so, you know, this was so important to her. And it was just such an honor to sit with her and to companion her where she was, you know, to really get what she, what she felt about it and how important it was, you know. And then when I didn't say, I didn't, like, give her advice until she really asked me. She said, well, what should I do? And, and I said, well, maybe you could, you know, figure out a schedule of things that you could do around the house and, you know, do better at school. I think that was one of the things that she hadn't, wasn't doing so well at. And I could certainly relate to that. I went, well, I was a terrible student myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, in the Thursday group, yeah. have you had meetings where... I don't know if this is the right word. Volatility came up where, like, um, you know, arguments mm-hmm. came up. Mm-hmm. Even though everyone's there mm-hmm. in peace and support. Yes. And, yes. But. Yes. Um, I would not say arguments because really the purpose of the group is to practice being with each other in a way that we offer listening and understanding and care. Um, in our culture, the way that we tend to companion people or to try to support them is to offer advice, unsolicited advice, which basically leaves them feeling alone. Because if I offer you unsolicited advice, if I say, you know, Greg, really, you know, have you read Louise Hay about your back problems? I'm talking about me. I'm not really being with you. The purpose of this group is to be companioning each other, just like, what is it like, you know, if you say that you're having a, a hard time in a relationship with somebody, you know, I would, I would want to go, okay, what's it like to be you? And I would ask you questions and offer you empathy guesses. You know, are you feeling, are you feeling sad? Are you feeling lonely? Um, and then by looking at your expression and hearing your voice and then I would know whether or not my guests had landed. So, okay, this is very general, mm-hmm. but in modeling, and this is from a recent experience I had in a mastermind group, uh-huh. the patriarchal character seems to have elements of rigidness. Yes. And the feminine, more... Um, Fluid mm-hmm. in your group? No, I think in general. In general, my experience uh-huh. of, and like as myself as a man, and there's this element that came up where I had this moral thought, like don't lie. Yes. And and there's a rigidity to it, even though you know I hear people express oh. how you know while I lied because I was protecting myself or I lied because and and I understand their perspective yes I think what's most important to me now in talking with you is these nature elements of male and female mm-hmm. that seem to be in opposition mm-hmm. and that fire 
comes out of because yes. it's right energies budding yes. against each other. Yes. Have you found a path of <laughs> living together? Yes. Um, well, first of all, I would not say that it's necessarily a male-female thing. I think it's a human thing. And I want to just understand what you meant when you said, don't lie. Does that mean, were you meaning that somebody was implying that I'm not going to lie, I'm going to tell you that I think that you're a real jerk, and that means I'm not lying? No. Is that what you mean? Because no. I'm not clear about what that, that part was about. Here's uh, what, what I find to be true, mm -hmm. is when a lie is happening, mm -hmm. in my belief and experience, there's something more important to be attended to and that's why the lie seems justified, because it's sort of a band-aid. It's a glossing over mm -hmm. of what's really going on. Yes, because somebody doesn't want to really say what's really the truth for them. Right. Yes. Right. And so are you saying that that's hard for you to be with when that happens? Yeah. <laughs> yeah? Is that I, what you're I, saying? I, I am, because... Yes, I am. That's okay, so I'm wanna, I want to just offer you an empathy guess, okay? Okay. Oh, I'm getting a free session here. Getting a free session. <laughs> so the thing that I love about nonviolent communication is that, that there's, there's, that we all have the same needs, we all have the same physical needs, you know, air, food, water, shelter, those things, but we also share the same emotional needs. So we have pages and pages of lists of needs. And in, in nonviolent communication, it's like a language of speaking about those needs. And so we have this amazing internal experience that just is natural within us that tells us whether or not our needs are being met, and that's our feelings. So when we have a feeling, if it's a positive feeling, then that's an indication that, that there's probably a positive need that's being met. If you have a not positive feeling, then there's probably a, a, a need that is not being met, that you would like to have met. So I would ask you, when that happens, do you feel some discomfort? Because you have a need for uh, integrity. Discomfort I would use. I could I could leave it at discomfort. It's uh -huh. definitely there is discomfort. discomfort. But is there anger as well? Right. 
my past experience, recent experience, would be there is anger, though I'm not aware of it at the time. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. And, and because I'm not aware mm-hmm. of it, I think then my communication is volatile. Yes, of course. So then maybe, it, maybe you, you could even call it frustration, which is like I see it as a low level of anger. So you feel a sense of frustration, and I'm wondering if a need that's not being met could be safety, emotional safety that you're not feeling, you're not experiencing emotional safety, which is a need that we all have. It's a good question. Because if I follow that path Uh that the question opens up, then there's like, yeah, there's this realm of what's real. Mm -hmm. And, And what I hear in real because I base my decisions and actions a lot on what I hear from others yes uh huh so suddenly the foundation is potentially non-existent yeah which could be pretty unsafe emotionally yeah and safety is like a, a, a base need Ah, it's so because as you know I'm going through this divorce uh-huh. there's an element of in my marriage an awareness I had like there's something wrong with the foundation in yeah. this relationship Yeah. so there's an element of gratitude for mm-hmm. my ex to make a decision to end it mm-hmm. there's also a lot of pain mm-hmm. and And the irrelevant question, <laughs> but like, could we both have worked on that foundation together mm-hmm. and really made it, created it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. healed? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And that kind of wraps back into what you were saying at the very beginning of the programming handed down through generations. Yes. Like, to partner up with someone and we don't see that programming from yes. three, four generations Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. And they're not seeing their programming from generations ago. Right. But when we look at it through the lens of a family constellation, then we it's kind of like there's a traffic jam and all the cars and the trucks are all mixed up and we don't see where they all belong but in a family constellation, when we look at the lineage and we have people step in as representatives for different parts of the life, then it's like taking all the cars out of the traffic jam and putting them in the parking lot so you can see them. And then you go, oh, that's why I made that decision. That's why I always seem to choose X. You know, because my my father or my uncle or somebody did that and I am honoring them. Or somebody was excluded and I'm honoring them. 
when people are excluded from a family system because of mental illness, criminality, they did something stupid, whatever, then somebody down the line will take that up to include it. It's kind of part of the oneness. So have you found that in your life that there's healing you've done in your oh. family? Oh my God. I had I had um, chronic back pain for the past 25 years. Um, like all the time, all day, just about every day. And um, I've been studying facilitating constellations and I um, was reading this book by this man who's like the foremost uh, constellation facilitator for medical constellations. He helps people with life-threatening illnesses through family constellation work. And I thought, oh, that might be fun. And I was going to go see him in a workshop in Seattle, which I did last just a few months ago. And um, so I was reading halfway through his book, which is called Even If It Costs Me My Life. I read halfway through the book, and um, I was out at the Vedanta Retreat Center in Alima, which is a great place to go for silent retreats. I was there for like a three-day silent retreat. I was out walking in the woods, and um, all of a sudden, I had a spontaneous... experience of unconditional love for my father who died when I was 13 and we never had a good relationship and he was um, did not have the emotional resources to parent me in a loving and caring way and so our relationship was, was very strained and he was very punitive and uh, my whole life, since I was 13, have seen him as um, with a great deal of resentment and animosity my whole life. So here I am out in the woods having this experience of unconditional love for him, like a physical, emotional mental, spiritual, all together. My whole body was like glowing. I could feel golden energy coming off my body. I was delighted. I started talking to him. I just went, oh gosh, we have so much to talk about. I have so much to tell you. Oh my God. You know, I love you so much, you know. (laughs) And I was like, woo, (laughs) this is great. And And I got back to my room and I thought, I'll, I think I'll just do a little yoga. And I got out my yoga mat, and I was like, oh my God, I'm so much more flexible. Oh my God, I'm so much more flexible. And you know, that was, that was in April, that was six months ago, maybe more. Um, I haven't had any back pain since, not one bit. Yeah, a real physical healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I mean, wow, what a thing. It's all about the love. And in, in, in family constellations, what, what we do is we put 
people in their right places of honor in the family. And, and that's hard to do for some people. Certainly hard to do for me. Um, but we, when, when they are in their respected and honored places in our family, then the need for symptoms, the symptoms don't need to stick around. Yeah. In my mind, I still want to put a hierarchy to spiritual and physical. Ah, yeah, that's kind of part of our our culture, I think. But not every culture does that, right? Right. Yeah. Right, right. Just right. here in America, you know. Oh, um, yeah. 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 Sure. Well, that's where we came from, pretty yeah. much. Some of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it is does seem like a healthier holding to just know both as one and the same. Look at how much trouble we've gotten ourselves into by denying the physical. You know, by denying sex. Uh, you know, some religions dancing, you know, emotional joy. You know, it, 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 it creates a blockage in the flow of love when we stop ourselves from our, our natural expression right, so here's a question then for you because uh, there's times and in my experience I'm going to say it's male energy that mm-hmm. wolf the you know mm-hmm. the, but it's interesting because Kali you know the mm-hmm. I, I love her mm-hmm. as a deity. Kali is the deity of anger and and tearing apart yes, and rendering. Right. Yes. Yes. And I also destruction. Heard, right, right. Right. Yeah. But I did hear um, a teacher say that she's also the most compassionate of the mm-hmm. deities, mm-hmm. and that so often in um, studying her, people miss that piece of her, mm-hmm. and. Um, as the debate of, you know, especially now with what's going on in our politics mm-hmm. and community, it seems like, you know, the patriarch is such a bad man. Mm. And, um, yeah. And that all the violence is coming from that. Yes. And that Kali is a very clear representation of the feminine also having that yes. capability of rendering. Yes. So from a interpersonal neurobiology viewpoint Kali would be like somebody that was using both hemispheres of their brain right so there's the left hemisphere which we kind of equate with what you're talking about about the male patriarchy the left hemisphere is all about strategy it's all about lists and logic and figuring stuff out it's uh, the left hemisphere doesn't feel it can't it does not feel the right hemisphere on the other hand is all about um, emotional expression it's it's about vision it's it's about uh, 
poetry and uh, prosody, you know, how we, how we use our tone when we speak to somebody, our expression. Is? Yeah, prosody is like its tone, its volume, its um, it's it's how we deliver our our uh, our language, basically how how we express ourselves uh, vocally, aud- aud- auditorily. Um, <laughs> all of these right hemisphere things that we kind of equate with the, with the female energy, you know, we're dual processors. We use both hemispheres. We can't talk without our left hemisphere. So ideally the left hemisphere is in service to the right hemisphere. Ideally, so we have the, the vision of what we want. You know, we get the creative idea. We want to make a painting. We want to be a photographer. We want to, you know, change the world through videography. And then we need the left hemisphere to get us marketing and, you know, get it done figure out how to edit it and that sort of thing and I think there is a there is a um, definitely a, a, a uh, imbalance when when people are using more more of one hemisphere than the other and and I think I could point to that to issues in our government right now so I'm stuck on you saying um we should have the left hemisphere in service yes. to the right hemisphere. Yes. Because that, to me, yes. I heard the hierarchy, you know, one yes. lording over the other. Yes. The left hemisphere doesn't see souls. People are tools. People are to be used as tools. The right hemisphere can, can see into somebody's heart. <laughs> um, to me, at the risk of creating argument, that's okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, let's argue. <laughs> uh, Any time we enter a situation of one over the other, mm-hmm. we are entering imbalance. Yes, absolutely. So it seems that what we're really working towards Mm -hmm. is that step of grace that's beyond duality where it really is one and these elements of lists Mm -hmm. and um, action are co-creating with the spirit and the ethereal. Yes. That is a that's a balanced brain. It's a regulated brain. It's a secure attachment in terms of uh, attachment theory um, in how we relate to each other. It's using both sides of the brain. Yeah. Do you think that you have that in your life for yourself? I'm, I'm learning that. I'm, I'm becoming my... Uh, I've been studying attachment theory. In fact, I just was at a Constellations conference... Uh, a couple of weeks ago where I, I led a workshop that was called Using Constellations to Improve Your Love Life. Um, how adult attachment styles affect the flow of love. And it's about 
when we're babies and all we have is the brain use pattern of our primary caregiver. That's all we have. That's God to us because that's our link to belonging, right? So, so we, we, we take on the attachment style of our parent, which then later has a direct impact on who we choose to be in intimate relationship with, whether they move toward intimacy or away from intimacy is very important to us in terms of how we move toward intimacy and away from intimacy with friends, with teachers, with, you know, sweethearts. So I was raised in a, um, I would, I, it would be called an insecure attachment environment that's called avoidantly attached because we're going to attach in some way. We're attached. It's how we attach. Does our parent move toward intimacy or away from it? And in an avoidantly attached home, the parents, um, such as mine, everything is very orderly, everything's in its place, dinner's on the table at 6 o'clock, go to the right schools, but there's no emotional interaction, not much. So it's like a desert, emotionally, starved for emotional relationality so that's how I was raised but what I'm doing is I am becoming an earned secure attachment because of the work that I'm doing with um, with my brain and the interpersonal neurobiology work and the constellation work you know all of that together and what do you mean by earned that means that I wasn't raised in a secure attachment environment but because our fibers of attachment in our brain are so neuroplastic, they are happy to change. They're happy to change, but it takes a lot of time. And I remember when I first started studying with my teacher like six years ago, and she said, it takes five years to change your brain. Four or five years to change your brain. I went, oh, come on. I live in California. You know, we can do it in a weekend workshop, you know? <laughs> no, not so much. But the thing is, is that I didn't know what the change, what what my brain was capable of doing, until it started to change, and it's so subtle, so subtle changes. Subtly, I start to love myself more. Subtly, I start to judge other people less. Subtly, I start to be more inclusive, more compassionate, more empathic. Yeah, and now. You know, five years later, six years later, I can stop myself. <laughs> Today in yoga. Okay, I love my yoga teacher, Leah. I love her. She's so sweet. And she was walking, she was helping the person next to me. And, and like, her butt was like right there. And I just wanted to take my block and like pat her on the butt, you know. She would think it was funny. I would think it was funny. That's something I would have done without thinking about but I just went ah you know just do I need to do that you know do I need to have you know elicit a response from her about that whether she likes it or whether she doesn't you know and then I went no I don't that was because of the brain change I've gone through silly kind of example but it just came up today right (laughs) 
that's a great example of what I struggle with with the creative, which is that moment and no thought to it, the improv yeah. moment. Yes. And yet we all have experienced that action without thought sometimes is very harmful. Yes. And to find that balance and, yes. and trust. Absolutely. Yes. Another area that I've been able to change as part of moving into a more earned secure attachment is that I've been able to um, uh, modify my uh, default network mode, which is the brain pattern that we have when we're not focused on something specific. It just goes into default mode. And many of us have a, a savage default mode which is very, you know, self-deprecating and self-hateful even. And, you know, where when we don't think we're not focused on something specific, our brain will go into, well, you know, you sure didn't do that very well. And, you know, look at how many, you know, look at how you're doing with relationships and, gee, you know, that kind of thing, whatever. And that changes. That changes, too, as the, as the, um, the relationship between the part of our brain in our limbic system that just wants to keep us safe by reminding us about bad things that happened, triggers, right. triggers our, our, our brain, just to try to keep us safe. It doesn't know, it doesn't know anything but the past. It has no sense of time. It just knows right now. And right now, here comes a dog that's, that's just like the dog that bit me when I was little. And all of a sudden, my body goes like that, you know? Trigger reaction. So what we get to do is we get to, through many processes, go back to that time when that happened and offer that young child empathy and companioning for where she was. Because in trauma, it's not so much that something terrible happened. It's that it happened and we were alone. We were not accompanied by somebody that was caring and understanding. And when that happens, when we accompany that younger part of us, then that memory moves out of the amygdala, which is the in the limbic system, which is our emotional like mothership. It's back here. Mm-hmm. It's back yeah, here. The it's like, it's, 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 yeah, it's at the at the brainstem where the brainstem right. comes in, and um, it scans for safety and mattering forty times a second. Every second, forty times, our amygdala is scanning the environment. What was that over there? You know, I hear a sound. You know, that person that's coming toward me is wearing a you know, weird jacket. That, that something happened in the past about a weird jacket, you know. So then what happens when we, when we companion that part of us is that that memory moves, physically moves, from the amygdala uh, up into the prefrontal cortex is where all the good stuff happens and then goes into the uh, hippocampus that time stamps it and, be, and is able to then say, okay, Next time I see that dog, my hippocampus is going to tell me there's the same dog that bit me, same kind of dog that bit me when I was little, 
But that was a long time ago. That is not now. And that was hard. And it might be a little uncomfortable to be around that dog, but I'm okay now. Yeah. Well, have they truly mapped out the brain to such a degree like you're speaking? Oh, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think... Well, this is a stupid question. Yeah. I mean, if I ask a stupid <laughs> question... It's a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it. Do you think there's potential that 10 years from now they're going to go... Oh, 40 times a second. That was crazy. That was archaic. Oh, they just did. (laughs) They just did that. Because the way I learned it, it was four times a second. And that was a lot. And I just learned a couple of months ago. um, The teacher that I work with studies all of the scientists that do all of the deep work that I would never be able to read or comprehend. She loves it. She's like a researcher. She loves it. And then she puts it in language that normal people can understand. And then I take it and I make it even simpler by drawing silly cartoons. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still blown to think of an experience that's living back. Now, I'm I'm not going to get the scientific terminology correct, but it's Uh living back here. Yes. And that then you can physically bring that memory, yes. energy yes. to the front, yes. process it, mm-hmm. and then bring it down to a different place mm-hmm. where now it's in a different storage area than yep. it was. Yeah, it's right and next to they're right, right next to each other. This is if you go like this. Um, this is your brain stem, and if you fold over your thumb, this is your uh, limbic system. Your amygdala is here, your hippocampus is here, and then if you take your fingers like this, and then you go like this, that's your forehead. That's your prefrontal cortex okay. right up there. And this is what's processing it and then storing it in a different place. Yeah, yeah. So here's the amygdala, and here's the hippocampus so right next door. Really, truly so truly, like the dogs that bit me in second grade. Yeah. That I still feel fear. Yes. I can move that right through processing. Absolutely, and absolutely. That's crazy. And then, and then, then it gets time stamped, and then you know that it isn't happening right now. Right. Because if you think about it, your amygdala is just trying to keep you safe, you know. And and if you know, if you, if you were like a caveman out hunting around, you would want your amygdala to tell you if that. You know, tiger that's coming towards you was something to be worried about. <laughs> All right, so I hear now where does this fit in? Because when we pass, mm-hmm. the brain as it is yeah. is left behind. Yeah. What's next on the other side? Well, what's next on the other side is epigenetics, is what we inherit when we get born. What's epigenetics? Ep- epigenetics is is the, the the study of how um, how our our parts of our legacy shows up in our bodies. So going back to the family. Yeah, this is like back to the right. family thing. Well, I mean, you said what happens? Well, we die when we when we die. Our brain stops working, and that happens. And then and then a new sperm hits a new egg and. But do you think, like Catherine, 
speaking uh, semantically, maybe yeah. blah, blah. So Catherine, the ego, is mm-hmm. going to cease to be. But there's an essence that's been working and mm-hmm. processing. Yeah. Is that, is that going to continue on? You know, I, I personally believe that it does. I believe that um, if there's only one of us, then there's something that goes into another expression. And I can't say exactly what it is. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it reincarnation. I don't know, you know. I know a lot of I know a lot of studies of people that have um, that that have uh, in, in other cultures, especially where you know children come to their parents and they say, "Oh, you know, I'm not your child. I'm the child of somebody that lives over in the next village." that they've never been to and, and the parents go that's crazy and the child said no really I'll show you where the key to the door is you know and then you take them over there and there's a key sitting exactly inside the, the wall where they left it or something I mean there's stories about that um, if, if uh, uh, intercessory prayer works I, I did a, a little study when I was in ministerial school about you know when you pray for somebody long distance it has an effect Quantum physics. There's just—it's like everything is connected. So when you said earlier, you know, Catherine passes on, and then another sperm impregnates another egg, and mm-hmm. do you think like potentially instantaneously that essence is? I have I no idea. Do you have any experiences in your life that are evidence of life beyond? Death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a, um, I had an experience when I was really young. It wasn't so much life beyond death, but it was something else that I couldn't explain. Um, I was uh, in my front yard and I was um, watching my brothers, my older brothers, play football, and I looked, I looked up at the window on the second story that was my bedroom and the, the wind was like moving the curtain and I got this experience that that was very very clear that I was here to do something important and I and it was like took over my whole body just like the experience that I had in the healing of my back that, that was a numinous experience mm-hmm. as well that was a uh, sort of a other kind of worldly experience, and that experience that I had as a child was so profound, and I knew that I didn't have the resources to figure out what it was, and that nobody around me also had the resources to figure out what it was, and I was going to have to remember it and come back to it, and I did. I remembered it, and throughout my life, I would go, "Remember that." You know what to do with that yet? No. <laughs> Remember that? Remember that? Yeah. What do we do with that? I don't know. You know, and 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 still, there's like a, there's mystery around it. But it was so real that you know nobody could argue with me and say, oh no, that wasn't real because I can I know it. You right. know. Yeah. Do you think that it is being satisfied? Yeah, I do. Probably in the last um, 
the last four years, I think the combination of changing my own brain so that I love myself a lot more and I accept myself and I can acknowledge myself and um, feel that, that my purpose in life, which I believe is to be a contribution, is, is uh, playing out. So yes. Seems to happen in small groups. <laughs> That's how it seems to happen. Yeah. It's a beautiful world for you. It's a beautiful world. Not me. It's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world.